Well, take that Bible this morning, look back to the book of Jonah, to the book of Jonah, and we come to that wonderful section in Jonah chapter 2. I think we really know sort of the, the account of Jonah, and we left off uh, at the end of chapter 1 with Jonah drowning in the Mediterranean Sea after the mariners or the sailors had hurled him overboard. They had hurled him overboard, and it was there that God commands the fish to go pick up Jonah for the most unique ride of his life. In fact, look at 117 is where we left. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. We said two weeks ago that that was a miraculous event. It was not a natural event, and though there may have been one who was uh, swallowed by some kind of fish and lived, and that's possible, this was miraculous because of what took place both in the nature of when he was swallowed and then when he was kind of spit up on the dry land. But again, you'll note there in verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And the fish obeys. The fish navigated by the Lord. We don't know, did Jonah sink? How far did he sink? Did the sailors see the whale come or the fish come to the top? We just don't know. But presumably it got him pretty quick. And then we'll pick up the text. And as we come into chapter 2, All of chapter 2, as you glance at it, 2, 1 through 10, is regarding Jonah's prayer. You'll note in 2, 1, then Jonah, after he was swallowed, if you will, up, it swallowed up Jonah, it says that he prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. And chapter 2 records the prayer of Jonah. And in typical Hebrew poetry fashion, that's the opening statement in verse 1. And then in verse 10 is the conclusion, and the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Now again, there's irony over this whole book and throughout it, because in chapter 1, I thought it was unique that Jonah had to pay his fare to board the ship to Tarshish. And now on the journey back to Nineveh, he's going free on a free ride courtesy of God. And whereas in chapter 1, Jonah is in a deep sleep in the ship's bottom portion, he is now in the belly of a fish, wide awake, and he's praying. And how unique it is for him to seek to escape to the furthest corner of the world And he is now praying to God from the belly of a great fish. I mean, just try to imagine for a moment the terrors of being hurled from the deck of a ship into those massive, swirling waves. What would it be like to be pounded on the verge of unconsciousness while being submerged into the salty sea? And then you awaken from that in pitch blackness, in a slimy pit of a fish's belly. And in that belly, you are heaved back and forth by perpetual motion of a great sea creature. You know yourself to be among the doomed, if you will, at the bottom of the abyss, one writer said, dwelling in outer darkness. And it was in that fish 
And from that darkness that Jonah prays. And so really what we have here in chapter 2 is a, is a prayer of praise. And I want us to look at that. That's what I've titled it, Jonah's Prayer of Praise. And I want to look at it both this week and then the next time that we are together. And it is a reminder, once again, of the greatness of God's mercy to us, the greatness of his mercy extended to others, and then it also serves as an outlet that we have, we have in prayer, in crisis. And so here, as we look at this, I want you to keep your own life in mind, and certainly you're not in the belly of a fish, but it might feel that way at times. And I'm going to take you to a number of scriptures where this same language used in Jonah 2 is used throughout the Psalms. And so there's great hope for us in prayer in the midst of a great crisis. Now, what I want to do really is just kind of twofold this morning. I want to take you to look at the text. We'll always come to the text first. And then I want to take you secondly to an implication. Because I believe as he finds himself in this crisis, we find ourselves in crisis in other Psalms. And I, I have to show you the language. It's amazing. But did I show you that picture? Look at that one. Um, I don't know if that's what it looked like. And um, maybe you can check if that's a real picture. I think it might be. Um, But imagine what it would be like to end up in that fish's belly. That all of a sudden, you're in there. And, And I'll say something about this in a minute. And it was while he was in that belly of that great fish that he began to pray. So as we walk through the text, let me enumerate just some principles for for you on Jonah's prayer of praise. First, I want to look at that prayer is a cry of distress in the midst of overwhelming pressure, okay? It's a cry of distress in the midst of overwhelming pressure. Pick up the text and look at verse 2. It says that he prayed in verse 1 to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. And obviously, we're going to look at this, and there's poetry within this, within Hebrew, and this is what we call a parallelism, where he calls out to the Lord out of his distress, and the Lord answered me. He's out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, verse 2, and you heard my voice. And so as he's in that fish's belly, he cries out to God. He cries out in distress, the text says, and he answered me. You heard my voice. I mean, he's in death's grip. And I don't think that he died there, but he feels like it. And he uses hyperbole here to speak of being in that grip. Uh, A guy by the name of J. Vernon McGee, who's, who's a good Bible teacher, actually believes that Jonah died in the midst of this. And of course, he would cite Matthew 12, 40, that just as Jesus was three days and three nights in, you know, in the belly of the earth, so too Jonah and so forth. But I don't believe that Jonah actually died. I think he's, he's in death's grip here. And he's using hyperbole here, but he's certainly close to death. And so while he's 
in Sheol, he cries for help. Now, you'll notice that phrase, and I'm just going to be in the text with you before I get you to the implication, okay? But he's in Sheol. What, what is Sheol? Well, in, in the Scripture, it, it's a place in the Old Testament of the dead. It's a place of the grave. It's an expression that speaks of being separated from God. And it's used all over in the Old Testament. In fact, in Isaiah 38.10, it has a picture in the language of Sheol that it has gates around it. And that's what Jonah feels like he's in. He's close to his death. He feels like he's down, if you will, into the bottom of the earth. And he's in that place called Sheol, and it has gates. In fact, in Psalm 141, verse 7, it describes Sheol or Sheol as having a mouth. And so you get this picture as he's swallowed and he comes to the inevitable reality of where he is. He's crying out to God out of the belly of Sheol is he crying. In fact, in Proverbs 9, 18, when it speaks of the wicked woman and the man who follows her, he does not know, the text says there, that the dead are there in Sheol, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. And so that's where Jonah is. He's, he's near death. In fact, Psalmist says in eighty nine forty eight, what man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of of Sheol. And so he feels swallowed, if you will. There's gates around him. The language will come out that he's enclosed and so forth. However, though, in the midst of that distress, in the midst of the overwhelming pressure that he personally feels, you can see it again. Look at verse 2. He says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. And in Hebrew parallelism, he answered me. In other words, this is Jonah's prayed. I cried out and he answered me. Okay, look at verse three, 2 again. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice. Look at verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you. Wow, here he is in the midst of overwhelming pressure, crying out in distress in prayer to God. I mean, just think about this situation for a moment, and I just want to touch on this. It's wet in there. (laughs) It's total darkness. He's in a constricted lining of a stomach, if you will. He is swirling in, frankly, digested enzymes, I mean, this is just the stuff of nightmares. I mean, this is not Pinocchio when Gabetto lights a fire and he's on a raft, right? You're not getting that picture here. Jonah is sloshing in seawater. Fish, as we know, are cold-blooded. And if it were a whale, if so, a mammal, it would have been warm-blooded. Certainly, the acids inside that whale would have irritated his skin. He is sharing space with half-digested remnants of whatever the fish ate in the last 24 hours. Incredible. It had an odor, I'm sure, and a taste of decomposing seafood. 
suffocating shortness of air, of fresh air, vile taste of fishy stomach acid, pressure, if you will, of the fish descent into the sea in verse 6. There must have been a constant sense of vertigo, mounting fear of hours and days go by with no relief and no sign of rescue. Incredible what it must have been like. Now, it says three, it says three days, three nights in, in Matthew 12, just like Christ was, but we know that didn't have to necessarily be three whole days, but he's in it, not for a half hour, not for an hour, but at least parts of three days. I mean, this would have been horrifying beyond words. Time passes with great slowness. It is silent, and all he can do was think. And I think it was, as you'll see, his sin that brought this about, and his guilt must have assaulted him. And so he prays, and he prays a a great prayer. And it's filled with a cry of distress. But the point here is that the Lord did indeed answer the wrong way prophet, and he will answer you as well. I mean, this is his prayer and the cry of his distress in the midst of overwhelming pressure. But secondly, and I'm just kind of keeping more in the text, prayer is a recognition of God's merciful discipline. Merciful discipline. You know, when you pray, you're not only praying at times in distress, at times crying out, but often when we pray, we are recognizing God's merciful discipline to us. That as much as we don't like his discipline, even the discipline was mercy to Jonah. And when I call it God's merciful discipline and a recognition of that, he's recognizing God's sovereignty. Look at the text in chapter 2, verse 3. Note the language there. For you cast me into the deep. Okay? Interesting, isn't it? Into the heart of the seas and the flood surrounded me. But he said, you cast me. And as he's praying, he's recognizing God's discipline in his life. He knew it was not the mariners ultimately. Again, at one point, we left last chapter, they picked him up and they threw him over. That we know. But he recognizes here in God's discipline, it was God who was doing it. That the sailors, that the sea itself were only instruments of God's discipline in Jonah's life. And he knew that in verse 3, and God had sent Jonah into the heart of the sea in a near-death experience in order to revive, in order to discipline, if you will, his understanding of his mercy. In fact, look what he said in verse 3. He said there, you see the language in 3b? All your waves and your billows passed over me. This is an amazing text. He's recognizing it's God that in the midst of his trial, in the midst of his discipline, as he begins to pray and cry out, it was God. It was his waves and his billows and God who had cast him over. Now, I'll get to this in just a moment, but the Psalms provide allusions all over to water and drowning, and they spoke of being overwhelmed by overwhelming problems. Look at this one in Psalm 69. Save me, O God, 
for the waters have come up to my neck. Now, I don't think he's in water. He's speaking metaphorically, isn't he? But you see this language. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. Very similar. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for you. And so here was that psalmist in the midst of an overwhelming circumstance and seeing prayer as a recognition of God's discipline. Look at the next one here. You probably know this one, Psalm 42, 7. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and all your waves have rolled over me. You see this throughout the psalmist where they speak of it in a metaphorical fashion, except for Jonah here, it is real. And all of these are rich metaphors to describe the overwhelming sense of being surrounded by massive problems. And so he recognizes that it's the Lord. And look how he feels in verse 4. He said there in 2-4, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Stop there just for a moment. He, he feels as though he's banished by God because of his disobedience. No longer is he on speaking terms with God. He has, quote, unquote, fallen out of favor with God. Certainly, he, he's changed here. He was, he was cast out, and Jonah, at some point, in some way, is saying, I'm at fault. He says, so I've been, I've been driven away. But look at verse 4. He says, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. And it, and it seems there, when he says to look upon holy God's holy temple, possibly it's a, a reference to God's domain, his heavenly domain, where God is set apart as holy. Oftentimes they spoke of the holy temple in the Old Testament to, to speak of the place where God's presence was known. In fact, look down in verse 7. He says something similar. He says, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. And so what Jonah is saying here is possibly even though he had been banished from God's presence, listen, he persists in prayer. I will pray again to him, though I've been cast out because of my actions. I will once again pray to God in his holy temple. But as quickly as he prays that, he goes back now in verse 5 to God's disciplining hand upon him in the depths of the sea. Look at it in verse 5. He's just describing what took place. He said, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep, he said, surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. And so the waters threatened to take his very life. It says in verse 5 that the waters closed in. I mean, imagine yourself, Jonah, surrounded, if you will. He's entrapped is the word. He's a prisoner at sea. It is though in the language here, Jonah is pictured in grave clothes and he's being placed in a tomb. He is at death's doorstep. He desired death. We know that earlier. And so God brought him 
to the very, very brink of death. So much so that he captures that imagery that the weeds were wrapped about my head. He's, he's seen in a watery grave. It's dark. He's straining to breathe. He can't see anything. And in the midst of this choking darkness, there are reeds wrapped about his head. And, and then I think of this scripture in Psalm 18. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me, and the snares of death confronted me. So here was Jonah in the midst there, and then we see the language of the Old Testament come out that often when these psalmists are writing, they felt as though the cords of death were encompassing them and assailing them and entangling them and confronting them. You know, so I hear that one of the cruelest torments ever devised in military tactics or terrorism is water torture. Sometimes we refer to that as water boarding, where water is run up the victim's nose and mouth continually so that they cannot breathe. And it induces, they would say, a physiological process where that particular person just feels like they're drowning. And those subjected to it feel as though and would say that they feel like they're dying. And I'm not saying here that this was God's treatment to Jonah, but I'm saying this is even worse than that. And it's worse because I think, I don't know if I'm so much speaking physically, but this is God's judgment upon Jonah. I mean, this is a wrong way prophet. God said, go northeast, and he went west. God said, go preach, and he went to go sleep. He said, just throw me overboard, and God released him to that, and then he appoints this great fish to swallow him up, and he feels as though he's in this watery grave. You say, does it get worse? Yes, it does. Look at verse 6. He says, at the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon, he says, whose bars closed upon me forever. In other words, he's descending, is he not? He's at the root of the mountains. He's to the mountain bases. It makes sense, right? Extending to the bottom of the sea. He is in utter despair. He went down to the land, he says, whose bars closed upon me forever. And he's using a reference there to the underworld. In other words, he pictures the underworld as having bars, as having gates around it with no chance of escape forever. He feels as though he's doomed. In fact, the writer, Jonah says, he speaks of the roots of the mountains. In other words, he's talking about the deepest extremities of the mountains. And then he mentions those bars, and both bars and roots, as I mentioned, are expressions of ancient Near Eastern and Old Testament imagery that points to the power of death to imprison its captives. I mean, he is at rock bottom, literally, it is, and it is at this moment, in his greatest darkness, in his greatest despair, that God breaks through to rescue him. In fact, when you look at the entire prayer here in 2.6, he's at the lowest point. In fact, verse 6, 
speaks of him going down to the land. And I don't want to make too much of this, but his whole motion of his life is completely opposite of the obedience of the Lord, isn't it? God says, I want you to go to Nineveh, and he goes and boards a ship in Joppa on his way to Tarshish. He's on, he's on his way to the furthest part of the known world. Then he gets on into the boat, and he goes down into the boat, and he sleeps. Then he goes into the water. Then he goes into the whale belly, and then the whale takes him down even further. I mean, he's hitting rock bottom, if you will, and here his descent is halted. His flight from the presence of God has ended, yet it is here in the innermost depths of Sheol that Jonah meets God when I think he cries out now. And our third principle that not only is prayer, the ideal of calling out in distressed and overwhelming pressure. It is recognizing God's merciful compassion. But here prayer is praise for God's rescuing nature. Because look at 2.6. He said there, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. It is the turning point of Jonah's life. In other words, only God can bring you back up from the pit. So God's rescue comes in the nick of time. In fact, when you look at the word pit, it's just another word. It's a synonym for the grave. Now, you'll note something here, and you've not seen it before. Look at 2.6 again. He says, you've brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. Only God can do that, right? But here the repentant prophet confessed the Lord was his God. And it is the first time in Jonah that Jonah confesses God as my God. So if you're right there in your Bible, the prodigal returns somewhere right here. In other words, not only does he recognize this, but he's going to lead forth in a moment here to pray and to give praise. Look at verse 9. But I with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So as he goes into his proverbial prayer closet, he cries out in distress in the midst of this pressure. As he's praying, he's recognizing God's merciful compassion to him. And then his prayer now leads forth to praise. And I think here, note this, that at least in the text, he's praising God for deliverance before he sees the light of day. God indeed rescues him in the nick of time. God revives him. God rescues Jonah. He resuscitates Jonah. He renews Jonah. And I think here's the confidence. He will do so to you this morning if you pray, if you pray. Now, I want to just take a moment here because I think this is a historical narrative. It is. I mean, we could just keep going and finish it in one week. And I think I just need one more week with you to do this, okay? And and pray for me. And and actually, I'll be away from you next week. Demo is preaching. But when we get back into this, I'm trying to figure out if he was was, uh, fully repentant. 
I know he praises God there, but I'm still trying to wrestle that when he went and preached in chapter 3, and God caused the revival in the whole city in 4, 1 through 3, he is angry. He is angry. So even though he has praise here, okay, he does say so. I, I, I with the voice of thanks, thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. And what I vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. I, I need a little more time in that. Because there's something interesting, and I don't want to give this away just yet. There's something that I don't see in his prayer, and maybe you can chew on this. I don't see him ever recognizing part of his sin, which is interesting. He recognizes being delivered from the fish, but I'm not so sure that he recognizes what he did and repents of that. Now, Certainly, God spit him back up. Verse 10, he kind of vomited Jonah back up on the dry land. Isn't that interesting that the Lord appointed that fish to point him right where he needed to go? He still had had a little bit of journey inland from where he will, he will be spit up. But it's interesting because when you get to chapter 4, he's, he's angry. But I thought, let me just back away just for a moment because I think there's too much Scripture just to leave this as a historical lesson for you or in my, in my own heart. So let me just take these implication points to you to encourage you. So the implication points are just going to have a little word attached on it. Our prayer is a cry for distress in the midst of overwhelming pressure. So as he prayed, we can pray. And again, this is more of an implication of the text, but there's so much other scripture here that I feel like I have to do justice to this, that though we're studying Jonah, though it be about the mercy of God to the nation of Nineveh, it also instructs us to be a people that are praying in the midst of overwhelming pressure. And maybe you have been over your head in a circumstance. Maybe you feel that way even this day. I don't know what what it might be. could be a relationship could be a child, could be a financial pressure, could be um, grandchildren, could be any aspect of the future, could be health. You have proverbially, if you will, hit rock bottom. And God may have you in a circumstance this morning. And and I think what you're going to see out of this is God was so merciful to Jonah to answer him and to listen to him that, listen, when you cry to him, here's the promise. He's going to hear your voice. And when you are drowning, if you will, he is there. And the implication here is to pray. And the first step of being delivered is to cry out to God. In other words, there's no need for despair mercifully, God heard his prayer and answered him, and he will do so with you. Spurgeon said it this way, if any of you should ask me, ask for me an epitome of the Christian religion, I should say it is that in one word, the epitome, he said, and that word is prayer. Look at these scriptures, okay? Psalm 18, I will call upon the Lord. That's prayer, is it not? 
who is worthy to be praised. And I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. And in my distress, what? I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. And from his temple, sound familiar? He heard my voice and my cry came to him and reached his ears. What's on your heart this morning? Listen, this is an instruction about Jonah historically, but there's principles here that emerge on our prayer, if you will, in the, of distress in the midst of overwhelming pressure to cry out to God. And as Jonah cried and was heard, you can cry and you have assurance that you'll be heard. Look at the next psalm. It's a long one, but Psalm 88 Oh, Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. Interesting language. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your, what? Waves. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me when they surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. But he cries out day and night before his God. In fact, he said in verse 13, but I, O Lord, later, cry to you. Listen, this ought to help us be a people that pray to be a a mom that prays, to be a dad that prays, to be a pastor that prays, to be a single mother with kids to pray. Listen, you can call out to God. I'm going to show you the case where I don't even think Jonah was completely, I think, repentant, but God answered him and God put him where he needed to be and he's ever so patient with us. But listen, you and I need to pray. Look at the next Psalm, Psalm 118. From my distress, I called upon the Lord and the Lord answered me and set me in a large place. So I really believe the Lord is calling us to pray. He's calling you to pray individually. He's calling you to pray as a family. High school students, he's calling you to pray. Junior high students, he's calling you to pray. Grandparents, he's calling you to pray. From my distress, I called upon the Lord and he he answered me. And if he answered the psalmist, why won't he answer you? And if he answered Jonah, why won't he answer you? Look at Psalm 116. This is a little bizarre in the sense of the language. Snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered. There's our word distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Oh Lord, I pray. 
deliver my soul. Here is an implication for us that as Jonah prayed, we ought to pray. And then look at this last one, maybe familiar to you. Psalm 120, verse 1, in my trouble, I cried to the Lord and he answered me. Would it be that we be a body that are just praying all the time? I'm just, I'm working on that in my own life. Just even yesterday, as I was having that wonderful duty of cleaning the garage, I was just, Lord, just help me pray. Lord, I pray for this. Lord, I cry out to you for this. Lord, make me this. Help our church be this. Help my children, Father, walk in your ways. And we pray so our prayer is a cry of distress in the midst of overwhelming pressure. Secondly, our prayer is the recognition of God's merciful discipline. In other words, if you're praying and possibly like Jonah, but to you, you've sinned greatly and you've been utterly disobedient. (laughs) Jonah was even rebellious. And I, I don't say that like, gosh, he was. I'm just saying I see God's mercy on Jonah. Do you not? He was rebellious and in the midst of God's discipline is God's mercy. And listen, God had not abandoned Jonah, nor has he abandoned you this morning. He has not left you in the storm alone. He is with you a very present help in time of trouble. I'm thinking of this. Look in Hebrews. When you think about prayer is recognizing God's discipline. Look at this next scripture there. Um, uh, yeah, one more now. Yeah, here it is. There's Psalm 132. That, that's, that's one of them. I, I took out one. Leave it right there. Remember, remember Hebrews? Have you forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he what? He disciplines or he scourges. I think it was uh, the King James. And he scourges every son whom he receives. In fact, here's Psalm 31. As for me, I said in my alarm, I am cut off before your eyes. Here's the the point. Nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplications when I cried to you. Oh, listen, listen, we've got to be a people that pray, amen? In fact, let me show you this one. Look over, and I touched on it earlier. Look at Psalm 69. Would you turn there? Psalm 69. Because the language is just so familiar that we've got to give out these implications as we move through Jonah's prayer. But do you remember this one in Psalm 69 in verse, well, back up, he says this. You'd think this is Jonah. It's just the psalmist here, okay? It's a psalm of David. He says, but as for me, and I'm in 6913, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O oh God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. And then he says, deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit 
Close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. What a, what a prayer. And so here our prayer is a recognition of God's merciful discipline when Jonah knew that where he was was a result of his own actions. And to that end, he recognized God's sovereignty. And I think prayer will do that as well. And third and finally, our prayers praise for God's rescuing nature. I love that little section in Jonah in 2-6-B, if you will, yet you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When you and I are truly praying, part of our prayer not only cries out in distress, secondly, recognizes his merciful discipline to us to get us pointed in the right path, but thirdly, inevitably, our prayer should lead to praise for his rescuing nature. Look down in Jonah chapter 2. He even says there, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. And what I have vowed I will pay, salvation belongs to the Lord. And so in some sense, he certainly was, maybe totally, with a voice of thanksgiving. I'm just not sure if he's just thankful that God's going to deliver him or if he's repentant for actually the sin that he had so wrongly thought about the Ninevite people. But you see this element in his prayer with a voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. You know, when a man or woman is really walking with the Lord, praise is going to be on their heart. One of the greatest evidences of a Christian is praise in prayer. And in fact, you can't get outside of Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3 where Paul just keep, I bow my knee and give thanks to the Father whom every family, and it's, it's praise. And one of the quickest ways that you'll know you're in relationship with God is what comes out of your mouth. And here at verse 9, he was with a voice of praise sacrificing, you know, that voice to his Lord. Look at these other scriptures. This is what struck me. I, oh, Lord, Psalm 30. My God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. Oh, Lord, you have brought me up, my, my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing what? Praises to the Lord. See, any man that is walking with the Lord, young man, whoever is going to be filled with praise. As, as, and I'm thinking, I was just at Resolve Wednesday night teaching the students on the filling of the Spirit. And one of the recognitions of when you're filled with the Spirit is, you know them, what's the fruit of the Spirit? It's love and what? Joy. And when our lives find themselves in submission to God, we, in this point, in this principle, will be able to praise the Lord, O his saints, and give thanks to his holy name for anger. You know this one is, but for the moment, his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes, what? In the morning. 
And so there's praise. And Jonah got to that part and we're instructed here as to his prayer. And the implication is for us. Think about this one, Psalm 86, where he says, pray, and it's about prayer. He says, for great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Oh God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life and they do not set you before them. But oh Lord, you, he says, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love and kindness, love and faithfulness. Wow. I mean, I, I pray that, that that's our heart. And you, you see this prayer is praise for God's rescuing nature. Which of you would ever forget? Bless the Lord. Oh, my soul. And right. And all that is within me. Forget none of his benefits, who forgives all your, what? Iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the, what? The pit, right? I mean, listen, as we come into the harvest feast, I mean, I'm preaching this to my, you ought to walk into the holidays with absolute joy that he redeemed your life from the pit, right? And that, of course, is talking about the doctrine of salvation. I think every day we should wake up, Lord, today I give you praise. Father, you bless the Lord, oh, my soul. Forget none of his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities. Look at the next psalm, Psalm 130. It says this, it's a great psalm. Out of the depths I've cried to you, oh, Lord, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, oh, Lord, should mark iniquities, oh, Lord, who could stand? And he beseeches the Lord in an attitude of thanksgiving, and so should we. So here's Jonah in the midst of this fish, crying out in distress, thanking God for his mercy and discipline, and at least praising him for his physical deliverance at that moment from that fish. And it should be a recitation of our heart that we would be people who praise the Lord. Amen? And we should, listen, come tonight. You, you come tonight to the feast. I think everybody's going to be there. I don't it might be that there's like 25 turkeys being cooked. And I think we've got it all provided, don't we? Except for, what did you have to bring? Dessert. Thank you. Okay. What would it be like if we just came into the harvest feast and we just recited to one another what we're thankful for? Or if you just came into the, if you just came into the harvest feast and you were just so overwhelmed that the God of mercy had mercy on you and had mercy on me. You say, but pastor, my struggle is deep and my husband, I, I know, and the Lord knows, but listen, I'm telling you that if he's redeemed your soul and brought you up from the pit, it's enough to praise him, isn't it? See, our problem is we get our eyes on other people and circumstances, and we forget that in the midst of even the discipline, God's still good, and he's still merciful. So do you understand? Watch this, and I don't have the time to go into the implications of all this. What was this cat thinking? Because he himself was not only redeemed by the Lord as a Jewish prophet, then the Lord rescues him from the whale and from the fish, and then he's ticked off, if you will, that God saved the whole country of the Ninevites. 
And I'll tell you, riding through this whole thing is a lack of understanding in Jonah's mind regarding the mercy of God towards other people. And I just think it begins with understanding his mercy towards us, right? Jonah must have got, at some point, prideful in there, thinking that he had something over somebody else, even though that the Lord had redeemed the nation of Israel, even though they were not good or bad or better than any country, Deuteronomy chapter 7. So listen, work on that this week. Work on praying in distress. Work on recognizing his discipline. You know, sometimes the Lord allows difficulty in your life and in my life. Here's why. Simply because you think wrong about God and you think wrong about his character. And to get your attention, because he loves you and because he wants you to be like Jesus Christ, he brings at times overwhelming circumstances in your life and my life so that your view of God's character is corrected and you think as he would think. And I'll tell you this, I was thinking this this morning. You ever think when I get to heaven, I'm sure going to like to talk to this person? I'll tell you, I want to talk to Jonah. I want to know what happened after this. I want to know what, okay, they all, you know, I'd like to talk to him, but you know what? He's working on us all at the same time, isn't he? But listen, make sure your times in prayer are also filled with praise so that you're reminding yourself of his goodness. And if you don't know the Lord this morning, crying out to him should be a crying out of your salvation to him because you've sinned. And your sin separates you from God. And the only way to enter a right relationship with God is to repent of your sin, acknowledge the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, his death for you, his resurrection on the third day. And you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Then you shall be saved. If you've never entered into that union with Christ, then I would pray that you do so today because What a wonderful plan that he has for our life, does he not? And just the fact that he redeemed us, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name.